Hello. Hey. What's what's going on? Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah. Can you hear me? Uh, technical difficulties. You know, it goes back. It's like my favorite mm -hmm. scene. One of my favorite scenes from Silicon Valley. You watch Silicon Valley, right? Of course. So there's like that scene early like, in the first couple seasons where like Gavin, he's like, let's use the Hooli hologram to, to have a conference call. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't work. It's like, oh, let's use like Hooli chat. And they're like, oh, Hooli chat doesn't work. And then they're like, call him. I'm like, on what? <laughs> like, on. <laughs> Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the ninth episode of the LLB podcast. We'll level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trending topics with us, myself, Alex, typically your host of EOA, main at the high ground, uh, Dave Chang. Happy, happy some everyone. Jangan, the information super connector. How are you, Jangan? Hello. And, and uh, Andrew G, the master debater in uh, Mexico now. Hola, everyone. Hola. What what are you doing in Mexico? I am continuing this never-ending trip. Basically, I couldn't come back to Malaysia because I couldn't get my quarantine. Couldn't, uh, couldn't come back. Couldn't come back. Couldn't come back. So I decided to spend Christmas and New Year's in Costa Rica. Uh, and then, you know, the weather was great. So I stayed there for a couple more weeks. And then now weeks. I decided to come up to Mexico. And now I'm here. I'm in a, I'm in a small town called Ciudad Valles next to this river called Huateca Potosina. It's gorgeous. There's this blue river here. So working in the mornings and hiking in the afternoons. No, I think that's a, the perfect segue. So the first topic we have was uh, New Year personal and professional plans for the barbarians. And uh, so I guess, uh, Andrew, why don't you start since you, you're continuing your journey? What, what is the plan do you have for 2022? Do not have a plan. <laughs> Plan. No tienes plano. What's that? Say that again, Jagan. No tienes no bueno. Plano. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, I mean, to be honest, I mean, without without getting too technical, I think for me, it's it's balancing uh, work and play. Uh, so this year is fifty percent intellectual stimulation, fifty percent cool adventures. I'm actually very fascinated by the future of work. I've been working with organizations that are fully remote and seeing how they're running uh, organizations um and i'm starting to see what the future could look like so basically costa rica is full of digital nomads i stayed in a bunch of places with great wi-fi with uh you know people who've been doing this lifestyle for a couple of years and starting to understand the tools they use the way they organize um uh, across uh, countries and it's it's absolutely fascinating right so i used to be a firm believer that synchronous office-based comms is the best way to do it. Now I'm starting to believe in like lengthy documentation, asynchronous communications, and the way these companies run fully remote organizations. So this year is my experiment to understand how do you build a world-class fully remote organization, uh, starting with me. Yeah, but that hasn't been like a new trend though, right? Like this kind of no bad thing's been going on for a long time. And is, is there anything new or different that you're seeing specifically that's changed or? I, I think the volume of people doing it post-pandemic has changed. Mm. So I'll give you an example, right? There, there's a startup in ZM uh, called Selena that's applying for it, like trying to get a SPAC right now. They have 140 hostels with co-working spaces and gyms attached to them. And like, so it's like, it's like, <laughs> 
it's like we work on steroids for people who live in hostels and want to be digital nomads. But but in this case, like no ridiculous, crazy valuation. It's actually kind of justified. And they've built this whole base around that, right? Uh, and then you have um, interesting tools that are being developed. Like, uh, I, I mean, there are these tools that a lot of people like, you know, High Five, which is a, a people management tool. Um, or Notion, which people use for notes, but a lot of organizations are using it as a way to replace communication. Um, just observing how they use these tools and how it's moving into uh, a new way of, of using them is a result of companies having been forced to be remote for a while, right? And as a, as a result of being forced to be remote, I think they've accepted that this could happen perpetually. And it's actually cheaper if you don't have to have fancy offices number one number two you don't have to pay so much number two you get to hire from a wide range of countries and basically increase your talent pool um and all you need to do is have the right kind of tools and support there so i think what i'm realizing at least in the last few months of travel is that this is becoming an accepted form of hiring an accepted form of running organizations um and the SaaS tools to support that kind of structure and organization is is waste we're just at the beginning uh, you know, like I've been using a tool called Miro that does whiteboarding. Um, and then like tools that people used to do for like UX and design are starting to be readapted so that you can have these wide fields and be able to move between like like uh, pictograms and, and mind maps. So the the re rejigging, reutilization of traditional tools, or not traditional, but like other B2B SaaS tools. Um, and and just like just general acceptance, right? Google is, is saying that they're going to be remote for a while. Apple says they're going to be remote for a while longer in the U.S. So people are just going to use their lifestyle. In the U.S., you're seeing people move out. Like I met a lot of people that I knew from the Bay Area who now live in the north, uh, in Wine Valley now, or you know, who are moving to Jackson Hole or places close to Adventure. So I think that the um, the tools to support that, the kind of infrastructure to support them in terms of more and more places with better Wi-Fi, cheaper flights, more subscription-based services for gyms and co-working spaces. Like you'll see those things increase. Yeah. Do, do you guys think that this trend is going to stick or, uh, you know, as, as I think we are getting to the endemic phase of COVID, right? Where it's just people are tired of it. They're moving forward. Do you, do you think there's just going to be this big resurgence back to offline retail and back to the office? Or do you guys really think this is going to be something permanent? I think it's going to yeah. stick, but I'm biased. Yeah, I think offline retail versus um, office worker are separate topics, right? If you, if you look at sort of like, I mean, to address retail real quickly, I think if you look at the genesis or the trajectory of where physical retail is going, I think more and more retailers percentage to adopt the Apple. Uh, strategy that they adopted like 20 years ago. So if you think about the yeah. stores, they're essentially, they're, they sell things, but their real purpose is, I guess, branding a customer experience center. Right? Yeah. I think that's still very, very important. Um, especially, you know, I think we talked about it a couple weeks ago. It was like, you know, as uh, there's more and more online retail coming online, acquisition becomes more expensive. And so at some point, it just makes more economic sense to build a retail store to acquire customers. Then it's a spend more money on Google and Facebook ads. So I think offline right. retail will come back, and there will be things people like to browse, like to shop, like talk to people, and they like to have some touch and feel of a um, of a product, right? In terms of like work, I agree. I agree with Andrew. I think we've reached the point where I think critical mass of people have been doing remote work long enough. It's just entered the zeitgeist and the expectations of. Um, employers, right? And if people are trying to compete for global talent, 
this is something yeah. that is sort of the baseline uh, expectation that people have. I think employers will by default be forced to allow some sort of flexible, uh, fully remote, or some sort of hybrid solutions. I think that's been one of the nice uh, secondary effects of that <laughs> that we've really we forced companies to accelerate the work from home uh, timeline by probably 10 to 20 years faster than they would have normally. Are you seeing that trend? Because you've invested in a recruiting business. Are you seeing that trend when you're looking for recruiting that it's global now? It doesn't matter where they're based, especially for these big guys, right? You recruit for very big so, guys. Yeah, so recruiting is a bit. So, we, so that firm, what it does is it's pure technical recruitment. So it only focuses on like um, developers, CTOs, product managers. And that class of people has always been very remote. Um, yeah, they, they, because there's, there's such high demand. And there's so much um, fluidity and like how we can move across companies and ecosystems that they've always been probably the easiest uh, profession to do remote work or or remote, right. But I think what we're seeing now is it's become more accepted for people outside of that profession, so for like accountants or finance people, or lawyers, or BD. Mm. I think the big one is BD salespeople, right? I think people have realized that you can do BD, oh, BD sales remotely, or it's you know, as opposed to spending like, I don't know, whatever, $3,000 buying someone business class ticket to go to London and see a client. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not going to get that. It's of course, you can't get like 100% efficiency. It's not always going to be as effective as that. But if you can get like yeah. 80 to 90% of the same effectiveness by doing a Zoom call. And I think we've proven that over the last two years. And people are starting to say, oh, yeah, we don't need to, to sure. do this, right? So I think the actually more interesting question is what's going to happen to business travel and business class? <laughs> People don't buy us plane tickets anymore. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, before we move, before we dive deeper into that, uh, Jangan, does, does anything about Momentum Works thinking about remote? Or do you agree with uh, Andrew's new adoption of new his new lifestyle? Do you support him? Are you doing it for your company? I think the first thing that uh, I want to do whenever it becomes feasible is to bring everyone together at least for a week. Um, yeah. Uh, even before the pandemic, we had a team um, dispersed through a number of countries. Um, and that, that was not a problem because because um, first you need boots on the ground, and the second that people can meet. I mean, you, you can jump on a. I mean, in Southeast Asia, you can jump on a flight and uh, in the morning and arrive for lunch. So for for most of the capitals, so so that was not a problem. And uh, and I think when the pandemic first kicked 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 in, was not a problem for us as well. So because the people have been working in their respective countries uh, anyway, and um, mm. and I think the only challenge is that there are some people forced out of the office that they, they had to work from home. That that was kind of change um, that, that 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 took some of us, I mean, a bit of time to adjust to. Um, but but I think the two years in, uh, when some of the team members have not met for two years, um, it. it there is a sense of awareness. I mean, I'm not saying that in the future everyone should be in office permanently, but uh, but having that that flexibility, that ability to to meet once in a while, because a lot of times what we do requires quite a bit of thinking and yeah. um, and uh, quite a bit of collaboration. Uh, of, of course, we'll be using all the tools, but uh, but but sometimes, I mean, having a group of people um, sitting in front of um, a whiteboard without distraction, with your oil phones kept outside. Uh, for two hours, it does wonders. Uh, so, so this is something that I'm hoping to to replicate um, uh, this year. Uh, so, 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 so things are becoming easier. I think end of last year, some people are traveling. Um, um, some countries have opened up um, in a bilateral way in Southeast Asia. 
we still haven't got to a point where, uh, I mean, we do have team in Malaysia, we do have team in Indonesia, we do have team in, in China. I mean, we have not got to the point where everybody can come together to one place and spend a week um, Mm. together, so so that's something that, that I'm hoping to do, and um, and and I, I, I do believe that the future will be will be hybrid because on one hand you are used to working remote, on on the other hand, I mean sometimes you do need to come together, so so having that flexibility will be good. I, I'm not sure how things will, will exactly pan out when when things seemingly go back to normal, where you can just travel as you used to. Uh, would people still um, keep the hybrid way, or, or people just na naturally gravitate towards one end, which is which is going back to office. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I can't predict that. Okay. Well, then, what about your personal plans for uh, 2022? What does what Momentum Works looking at? Uh, what are your personal plans professionally? Um, I, I would say that uh, on one hand, I was grateful that uh, that for the past three years we didn't get much time to travel. Uh, that gave us. Um, crucial time to reflect, to get clarity about what we do. And uh, I mean, there, there, there are a few things that, that we're doing before the pandemic, the ventures we're building, the consulting projects we're running, the insights we're publishing. But uh, but I think um, I think we're not doing many of this systematically. So, uh, so 2021 was a year of clarity where we get ourselves more organized, where we put revenue streams into proper business units with people heading each of them. Um, so, so 2022, I would say that uh, it's a year for us to scale. But, uh, but of course, we are all experienced entrepreneurs. We know that you can't really scale without, um, I mean, being careful, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's very easy to, to to get into the grind and get off track. So, 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 so that's something that uh, that I'm trying to do. I mean, 2022, scale, but keep things intact. Okay. And then, uh, what about for you, Dave? For any specific goals? acquiring uh, assets and properties yeah i guess i guess professionally uh one goes i would like to uh unwind some of my private positions this year if at all possible create some liquidity to deploy into into new positions uh and i was something big, but you know i think what i realized over the last couple of years is you know having to deploy the capital makes you do work right and you really want to get into like an industry and play some table stakes down or something yeah. down it forces you to learn how to deeper and understand on more from a level than you would if you were just being like superficial about it right Correct. so there are a couple yeah. of sectors that i do want to have a little bit more uh understanding in so like i think biotech and life sciences is something that i would like, really like to explore this year so ideally like i said align some positions grow some of the current portfolio to be cash flow positive <laughs> at least um and then start looking into to biosciences to close some capital there so, so you, you, some deals start talking to people and learning more about the space you want to do biotech and life sciences to extend your immortality goals essentially yeah that's actually exactly <laughs> what it is. it's all self-motivated right but yes I want to yeah Okay. And I guess, I guess for myself professionally, um, last year was when I first started doing angel investing. Uh, I did two deals. So I think I want to look at somehow to professionalize more, more of this, maybe do one or two more deals this year as well. Um, I'm not sure how that looks like, you know, it's either through more syndication. So the, the one startup I did help syndicate some decent money into, uh, Jangan and Andrew invested as well. 
Um, that's a, a specific, you know, that's along the lines of future of work as well, but in the crypto space. Um, so, you know, whether that's syndication, whether that's raising outside money, I think that's something interesting to look at. Uh, more, more importantly, like, um, I, I found this very interesting rubric from reading this book called The Happiness Equation, where, uh, you know, they kind of have a framework for prioritization and creating space. So on the y-axis, you know, if you imagine four squares, I'll pop this on the screen for the viewers, uh, but for people listening, right, just imagine a y-axis is thinking and the x-axis is doing. So in the top right right quadrant is high thinking and high doing is when you use typically like what Jenkins talking about, you're burning a lot, right? You know, you're, you're thinking and strategizing and you're executing really hard. Uh, you know, then on the below that, on the bottom right is, you know, high doing, but low thinking, that's just automated kind of stuff. You just do with it, right? And then low thinking, low doing is kind of like creating a lot, lot of space, right? So I think for me, the past, like, you know, since I stopped working 2020 till now, there's a lot of, lot of like, a lot of space has been created. Um, maybe too much space. <laughs> so and I, I've been doing some, some doing in media and podcasting and some investing, right? But so the, the other, the other uh, top left quadrant is, you know, high thinking and low doing, which is when you really try to find that clarity. So I think it's like Dave, you know, zooming in, finding clarity of how to formalize all this to think about business proper, you know, proper business models, especially, you know, with like a lot of turmoil going on, you want to make sure that, you know, whatever you know, you're pulling capital investing, you want to have that clarity to make sure it's something one you care about, you know, you're just, it's not a fad or a trend and that you can work, you know, even if you're not getting paid, you're happy to keep doing it. And then, you know, it creates long-term value that compounds over time. So I'm kind of trying to formalize, you know, what I've been doing in the, you know, the media space, creating content, uh, investing. Um, and it, I think it's not going to look like anything we've seen in the past. You know, I think people tend to put you in the bucket. Oh, you have to be a VC or you have to do this. Um, but, you know, the, a lot of the hybrid models I've been seeing are very interesting where they've created revenue streams and then they became a VC so that they actually have real ad value or, you know, they they look for, you know, companies kind of like a Berkshire where it's, you know, you have actual your default alive, you know, default dead and they use cash flow to then invest. Right. So there's more of these hybrids, you know, uh, that I'm thinking about to kind of build up from there. But, you know, I still need more clarity. Like, you know, you really want to have that clarity before you execute. And then even if it's wrong, so at least you know how to pivot away and just formalizing all those things for the past two years. It's kind of been like on a journey I've been on and trying to figure that out. Uh, so then materializing it this year in the physical form, an actual entity, uh, see who I want to work with, maybe get more capital and deploy it. So, yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm looking at. Um, and anything Alex, else for the uh, section, guys? Alex, can, I, can I add something? I, I, I like the word uh, clarity because that's something yeah. that uh, for the past whole year I've been, I've been thinking about. Um, um, and um, and the funny thing is that every two or three months, I would go back to um, the document which which I thought I would have some clarity, which I compiled like two or three months before, and yeah. uh, and, and and then they reflect back. I said, okay, now after like uh, like I don't know, two or three months, I have better clarity compared to two or three months uh, ago. So it's always a yeah. always ongoing, evolving process, and it actually makes me feel. Uh, more at ease with myself with, with, with the things I, I'm doing because I, I think I think we are all running our own thing in one way or another um, yeah. and we're all responsible for, for what we're doing as well as the people who are following us so 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 spending enough time to think to get clarity to to also to also I mean be at ease yourself I mean find the right direction would, would, would give you the confidence to, to launch yourself um, next um, People have been asking me uh, for years that, okay, what is momentum works? And what I've been telling them is the edge outfield because I, I can't really put that into a bucket. bucket. I'm, we're not really a, 
an investor. We're not really an accelerator. We're not really a consulting firm. Um, but um, but I think within the team, we're getting better and better clarity about what what we're doing. A process, as you said, Alex, is something that which is different from what is out there in the market. And whether that will work, or, I don't know. But at least um, at least I think now we have the clarity and the team is aligned. Yeah. So that's the best thing. Great. Uh, anything else to add for this section, guys? Uh, goals? Anything else? No. Eat more crab. Eat more crab. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Also, also, we all have to meet together. Probably, I think that that's what yes. we have to do. Yes. I think that's a good and, goal. We should all try and meet up somewhere. Yeah. Great. We, we should all meet together and and do a trip. Uh, like you said, Jang, meeting for for a while is important, right? It is. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we can move on to the next section. Um, this is more for Jangan. Jangan loves, since Momentum works in the business of, of media, they love to do predictions. They always go back and check, list. I am correct here, 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 right? So, uh, it's, such a um, bad, it's such a bad thing, Jangan, because if you're yeah. right, it looks really obvious in hindsight, but then otherwise, if you're, if you're wrong, it also looks really stupid. It's like a no-win. Yeah. So why don't we start off with Jankai? What what is your outlook? It's about phrasing it really broadly, Dave. It's about correct, correct, it really exactly. Well, that's the exactly. problem. If you phrase it too, well, that's the problem. If you phrase it too broadly, it just becomes a truism, right? If you get too specific, you're like never going to be right. Anyway, yeah. That's my well, <laughs> last year, I mean, I mean, we've been doing these predictions uh, at the beginning of every year um, since I think 2018. Um, so some of the some predictions are, I mean. Pretty specific, but uh, but I guess half of them are are sort of sector focused, which might be a bit vague. So some of the historical specific um, predictions that we that we got was, I mean, I think a few years ago we say we're saying that okay, Gojek now is going to expand outside um, uh, Indonesia. It's not going to, be, I mean, it's it's going to be slow. It's not going to be smooth. And uh, and last year we, we did this very very specific uh, prediction saying that C's market capitalization would double to two hundred billion. And it did um, for about two or three days in October. <laughs> Still correct. They, 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 they very, very quickly halved, um, halved um, uh, in a two month afterwards. And we're saying that, okay, shall we, shall we conclude that, okay, we'll write on this prediction. And, uh, and then we look at the wording and said, we, we're actually writing in 200 billion. But of course, I mean, predicting the, the uh, the, the second market is, is, is very, very hard. I mean, you know, historically, so many people have been doing, especially for the short run. Um, yeah, so so we thought it as not as um, as a sort of investment guidance or whatever, but it's more sort of like a few ideas that we threw at the beginning of the year that people can look at it and uh, and can debate about it, can think about it. I mean, at the end of the year, we come back and review to say that okay. Whether it makes sense, and uh, and my thinking on this topic has to be evolved. Um, I mean, how are the, are the various sectors in tech that we are watching became different throughout the year? So, 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 so that's the purpose of this exercise. Um, so, so we issued the predictions for this year, and uh, and uh, some people are already complaining, saying that oh, uh, there's no specific one like we did last year, like you know, on on on, on target price, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, <laughs> But, but, but we feel that, I mean, 2022 is probably uh, of less uncertainty compared to 2021. Um, I think we all see that COVID is probably going to end uh, in one way or another. And uh, the, the, the different sectors in Southeast Asia, which, which are raising capital, I mean, you, you can pretty much sort of predict how it will go, right? I mean, all, all, the, all the major players would go into groceries. Uh, I think, uh, I think, I think 
Grab's already doing that, Food Panda is doing that, Big Time, Line Man is doing that. Uh, shopping, no exception. Uh, I don't think they can let groceries um, be taken by somebody else. So, I mean, some of the company will go for IPO, and uh, I think most of the companies going for IPO this year will probably see their price slide because we have all seen the valuations in this region and whether that makes sense or not. So, 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 so basically, basically a set of um, uh, a set. A set of like ideas that that we, that we throw out, and and hopefully you can 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 stir some debate. So you can go to our our, our, our blog. Jangan, I have a question for you. Yeah. What do you what do you think about fifteen minute deliveries? Do you think they will flop or do you think they will succeed? Because there's been a huge burst of them, right? Um. Yeah. So so even in Singapore, I see a, a few companies being funded and uh, and by by ex executives of uh, large tech companies uh, building um, sort of instant delivery business models. Um, uh, I think the former MD of Lalamo in Singapore now is doing one funded by a few European investors, etc. Uh, I think uh, uh, Happy Fresh is uh, is back alive. Grab and Food Panda are investing big, and, and they, 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 they go across the globe, right? You see Joker, etc., etc. So, so, so there's lots of buzz there. Um, whether the business model makes sense, uh, I would say that I mean, in calculation, it, it, it can probably make sense, but uh, but it's it's a game of execution. It's a game where you need you need volume, you need density, you need huge operational efficiency to make to make it work, and also you need to look at competitive landscape. Um, so, so the few players from China, uh, I think Mrs. Fresh and Kindle myself, which are both publicly listed now, so you can you can check out their their financials. Uh, they are facing a um, a very competitive market in China, where, where every big player wants piece piece of the uh, the grocery fulfillment in one way or another. So, so, so I'm I'm not sure whether that's the entire representative of what other markets will see. Uh, because uh, so far I haven't seen any market as competitive as China, so 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 so, so that's the question. Um, volume and density, you can probably do some projections, you can probably do some simulations, and uh, and whether enough number of uh, customers will order for you on, on a regular basis, uh, that's something that, that you don't really know, right? I mean, unless you try it out, unless you make constant improvements, unless you sort of increase your penetration, um, build better your services. But uh, but the operational efficiency, uh, this is something that I think is achievable. Um, uh, I have seen lots of a very detailed on the ground research about what Meitai is doing, and in each locality and how they op optimize um, sorry optimize uh, the metrics of each operational area and eventually achieve a, a tiny profit for, uh, for 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 what they're doing. But 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 by doing that, they build a moat that that that's very very hard for others to to catch up with. So, so with, with all the startups which are running towards that, um, will they achieve that? I don't know. Uh, but I think at the moment it's probably not the top priority because um, because it's land grab, and uh, I will see that. Um, I mean, some of the big players will probably be out there to to, to to acquire some of these startups if they if they don't become too expensive. So, so, so I think the the game the game is being played out. Um, eventually. Um, Eventually, I think I think I think the demand will be there, uh, and how big the demand is uh, uh, is is very hard to predict. Uh, Andrew, what do you think? Um, I predict that nice. it's going to be rough. Um, so, and the reason is, I think most of these fifteen-minute delivery startups have been tangent on a few things. Right, one is um, they are 
they're 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 trying to get um, locations that are distressed assets because of the pandemic. They had to close down, and so they were able to get very cheap assets. So so basically, the pandemic allowed several very unique circumstances to exist for certain tech startups to be able to have unit economics that don't make any sense, right? Mm. Um, so take take for example, fifteen minute deliveries. They were able to get very cheap locations and obviously like two-year contracts to rent these places out and then be able to build out the density um and because a lot of more people were working from home and were willing to do groceries and didn't want to go out because of the pandemic because of covid they weren't going out um to meet friends at bars so they you know it made sense to not do groceries on the way back home from from work or from the bar from wherever you're you are right uh, as a result, these businesses were able to thrive. Now, what happens is, I do believe that the future of work is happening, but I think it's not going to happen across the board, right? Like the tech yeah. industry, yeah, we're, usually is ahead. If you work at a lab, you got to go back to the lab. Right? If you work in yeah. an office and it's a pretty strict environment where you know mostly it's boomers running the show, you're going to go back to work. Yep. So, in in majority of businesses where things are going to go back to normal. The unit economics on both sides of demand and supply are going to stop making sense, right? And so I think, like you know, this is one of those industries that's going to get hard. I think I think a lot of them, like Joker raising their billion dollars, like a lot of them, like building that war chest was important. But whether they can make those unit economics work, um, I, I think they'll succeed. I just don't think they're going to get ridiculous decorcorn valuations as fast as they think they will, right? And some of them will no. definitely flop. I can't I can't say who. Um, but there's also other industries that have been growing off the bloom of e-commerce, right? So revenue-based financing has blown up all across. That's one thing I've noticed in Europe, in, in LATAM and in the US, right? All these new financing models um, that create lending and fintech opportunities for e-commerce entrepreneurs. So if you look at a lot of new banks that have been created that support um, digital entrepreneurs, um, a lot of that demand and the, the risk models that they built um, can be called into question when when that digital purchasing power decreases, right? So that's another industry that for me up. Um, so so I think that we're going to see some massive flops. I, I can't say who, but but yeah, we'll definitely see them. I think uh, I think one one thing we look at the uh, grocery delivery, at least from China's point of view, right? We don't we don't look at okay, um, what, am I going to make this business model? I mean, this business model eventually has to be self-sustaining, but people are looking at okay. If you build this fulfillment network, what can you build on top of that? Um, so, 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 one way, one conventional wisdom is that okay, if you have this fulfillment network, you can disrupt e-commerce. Uh, but so far, I mean, if you, if you look at even what Vipa is doing, um, the instant delivery or, or quick commerce, whatever that, whatever you call it, anyway, is still largely focused on grocery and. Uh, the categories and sectors beyond that, I mean, of course, they've been selling iPhones, maybe, maybe I this one, right? but, uh, but the categories beyond that has been very, very, very small. So, 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 so will they be able to leverage this, this uh, instant, instant delivery infrastructure? Let's say if they manage to bring that infrastructure to a break-even point to, to fulfill other things, to, to, to increase the profit. Uh, that's a question mark. And that, that's something I don't think anybody has figured out yet. Yeah, yeah. I think I think China is very different in this kind of respect, and that uh, maybe I, I I don't know. My intuition tells me it might work better in China because they have a different kind of demand and problem that you know they're you're actually creating value to a pain point, 
in China, but like in other markets, I don't know what that looks like. So to me, it seems very shaky. And I think like, you know, Andrew hits a, a point on the head that things are changing when you go back to uh, return, you know, to post COVID. And along that vein, I think, you know, the, a lot of people who got, who jumped on the fat of cloud kitchens, a lot of those guys are going to flock and crush. If, like, just think about your or food ordering and wherever you are around the world. Like, I don't know, like for me, the cloud kitchen experience has been horrible and disgusting. I like mostly will order from like fast food that's like, you know, well-established McDonald's or KFC or something on these platforms. Like very, very rarely am I very happy with, you know, some kitchen or any other restaurant you know unless unless they have like productized transactional food really well that you're just looking for something quick and easy right so i think you know along that vein of returning back to norm i think you know these a lot of these players are going to die out um they were just you know never making a good product to begin with um so, you know there are certain ones that will survive because they are inherently very good and someone can solve that but i don't know that, that's what i think i i this one, this one i think that that kitchens just my experience in London and in, in Barcelona, I think they're going to kill it in super dense cities. There are some cities where the model of having multiple stores operating out of a single location, um, with you know, they're, they're freeze drying food and then they're refreshing it when they're delivered. Mm. I think that model, where you basically, I mean, think about Asia, right? You can make fried chicken coated with three different sauces and it could be Indian fried chicken, Korean fried chicken, or Kentucky fried Correct. chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so, yeah. and like, and like today, and, and, and you take certain cities where people just like fried chicken, but just like three different varieties of it. You slap a different label on it. It comes from the same store. That dark kitchen is winning it. So I do think they are like, I think that model actually may actually have some, uh, look at Travis's company, for example, sorry, Travis Collector's company. They're completely yeah. killing it. And there's a few others that are, Entering Southeast Asia as well, that I think will have a pretty yeah. decent uh, business model. Um, okay, so, that one I think. Maybe, maybe at a point here. So we are actually in the process of finalizing our updated version of food delivery platforms in Southeast Asia report, which will be published uh, before end of January. So, so we actually examined uh, the cloud kitchen models uh, across the region. Um, general, general sense, general sense. Uh, many of those groups are actually run by restaurant groups. The guys how to deliver good quality and the ones which are operated by by platforms. Some are not doing well. I think depending on which executive is actually in charge of it. But 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 many of those which are run by parties have access to which basically have access to as Andrew said. I mean low cost real estate, they want to convert that into a location, but do not have the expertise um, to run population. Many of them are not doing well because restaurants we can't be saying that uh, why would I pay for this? Why I, I can have I can lend space from for from, from my friends' restaurants uh, or, 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 or I can build I mean restaurant in the case of restaurant groups I can build on my own because I also have access to low cost real estate. So, so I think many of the real estate players we see in Southeast Asia are not really doing well. But those people who have the ability to, to deliver culinary products and have the have the experience to run restaurants, I think okay, great, uh, Dave. Anything for your end? You seeing anything for this coming year or any changes? I mean, just to quickly finish on this point on like the online grocery thing, I feel like this is like what the third iteration, of the same industry. Right, like we, you know, early internet, we had like what was that company like, grocery.com, which was like one of the, like like the largest 
internet bust. Like they literally raised, I think, like one of the biggest rounds, and then like immediately afterwards, the entire market crashed. Right, and then we had this second round, which was like maybe uh, let's say like when Happy Fresh started, which was like Instacart. maybe eight yeah yeah Instacart that round, and now like on the third iteration of this, and I feel like. My personal take is like it's sort of like the same story, and people keep trying to make it work, but I feel like they never truly crack the fundamental of it. Which is like, I think this model only works if it's a part of a larger platform mm. or ecosystem or, or Amazon. Like yeah, right. I think like maybe one of the reasons like China makes more sense is because China is for the most part a very consolidated ecosystem where there's like a few large players, and then everyone buys from those few large players yeah. their digital services. On top right. of that, so it doesn't matter if your online grocery doesn't make any money because you have like, payments and you have uh, regular e-commerce, food delivery, yeah. and, you know, booking and all that stuff, right? And sort of these like these standalone. So for me, like groceries is like the almost like canary in the coal mine. Whenever someone tells me that they want to do like a standalone grocery play again, that's always for me. It's like okay, this is kind of a sign that there's a bunch of liquidity in the market and it's super fun. <laughs> And, no, I'm serious. I'm serious, right? That's because true. Like, that's true. Like fundamentally, the unit economics business never works on a, as a standalone play, right? Because like no. you know, groceries, as we all know, is like notoriously the lowest margin of yeah. all retail already. It's like like a regular grocery store runs like one to two percent margins, and that's like like a high performing grocery store. We're talking Whole Foods, and so then when you when you take that and you try to move that into like online, and you also don't actually really fundamentally fix any true pain points in my opinion right like, I mean, inventory management stock yeah you know? yeah exactly right it's like it, it's, yeah. it's it's almost it's like it's like capital looking for a problem as opposed to like actually deploying something deploying capital mm. to fix an actual problem right so i'm no. generally speaking quite bearish on these things i think and same with the cloud kitchen right? i think these plays make sense if it's part of a larger ecosystem, like if you're already like a restaurant operator and you deploy cloud kitchen uh, on top of that, but like a standalone businesses, I'm, I'm, I have never been really high conviction on the sector. And I think this sort of ties into like my, like a broader um, theory or broader prediction that I have, maybe it's a bit broad. I'm looking at sort of the, the markets on macro level. And I think, you know, we're going to start to see um, a liquidity crunch coming probably towards the end of this year, right? You already see it to a certain extent. Like the Fed has basically announced that they're going to end tapering by March of this year, which yeah. means they're going to start stop buying assets. They're also going to start which raising is. interest rates. Uh, I think they've announced that they have two planned interest rates um, this year, right? So yeah. I think what that's going to do is I don't have knock-on effects on the private markets. And then a lot of these businesses that were started in this really, really frothy environment, uh, basically, if you raise, this is probably the best time to raise. If you try to raise again in like say eight yeah. months, I think it's be very, very difficult for a lot of these players that have poor unit economics because ultimately what's going to happen is people are going to become, there's going to be reconciliation between your fundamentals and your valuations. And then sort of like on top of that, Whenever this happens, happens is always like the rich will get richer. So the best companies, the biggest companies, won't have the most scale. They'll still be able to raise capital, right? Because yeah. people still the asset class will still exist, and they'll still 
employed. There's only deploying the best companies. But then a lot of like smaller standalone plays that have weak fundamentals, they are going to have to go into probably a profitability mode uh, type scenario. And then ultimately the best ones in that lower subset will probably be acquired by the biggest players no. in, in the ecosystem. Yeah. So that's that's like my prediction for this. Yeah, and if if interest rates, you know, well, depending on the timing, will be very interesting. I think. Uh, I think you know the the tapering goes hand in hand of interest rates being raised; they affect each other. So, and then what what's more interesting is that if supply chain has not been able to sort itself out, like we've been seeing across the world, the supply supply chain has been shocked, and if that doesn't get sorted out before that happens. It's going to be very, very interesting because effectively when interest rates go up, the dollar correlates to being stronger. And that's very good for export-oriented economies. But like, if these countries are still having supply chain problems, you're going to have this very interesting dis disjoint between growth of countries and uh, rates being raised. Uh, you know, you know, so it, it might not have this, it, it might cause more friction in, in the global markets, I think, if, if, you know, depending how it plays out. Like, I, I don't know if supply chains are going to improve in the next, you know, six months or earlier, I think it's going to take longer because we're talking about two years of, you know, basically unwinding that and then trying to, and then I don't know. It depends if things decouple further or not, but uh, it, it's it's a very uncertain time, I think, you know. So um, and, and like like Dave astutely points out, that may change things. You know, um, it does segue nicely to the next section of how investments is changing. You know, if if macro changes, I think. For the big LPs, they have been the biggest beneficiary of quantitative easing. You know, when whenever you want to increase money supply, the Fed just dumps money into these accounts of the largest financial institutions, which are banks or big investment companies who actually have the treasuries, right? And so those guys then loan out money and they have too much money to allocate, which then goes squeezes into VC, right? So, you know, if that nature, you know, if that changes, we're going to see probably risk off and then less allocations only to the best investors, right? Like the Sequoias and stuff will keep raising probably, but we're going to see a crunch further down. And then, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's like Dave said, you know, you should be raising now to take advantage of that. And we're seeing that, you know, like with the article that Jangan shared about uh, Y Combinator, they've raised the amount of seed round. And I think that that across the board globally, they're investing globally. So everywhere, you know, seed rounds increased, which we've talked about in other episodes. Uh, so, you know, think things are changing from the macro picture, but they do affect all the way down to what we see in the investment world on, on early stage and, uh, you know, series A and up, I guess. So I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? I think uh, I think many of the VCs uh, at this in, in this region, um, many of the so-called so top VCs have secured very, very large um uh, Next funds, and uh, we 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 are seeing fund sizes of five hundred million, and uh, and these guys will probably need to deploy all this capital in the next I don't know three years, no. two to three years. So 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 I I would see that I mean seed series A etc would, would remain hot for this region, mm. and uh, and also I think that there will be a bigger supply of of, of entrepreneurs. I mean not not grab this topic. Um, I think I know a bunch of people at C Group who are looking to come on and do their own thing. So, 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 so you have you have, you have founders, you have the capital, and you have infrastructure. I mean, not I mean, payment is pretty smooth in, in many places, and logistics is there. So, 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 so there are business models we can we can build on top of that. So, and um, and when we look at series, uh, series A investors, uh, they think about okay, exiting I don't know five seven years horizon. Um, would would five seven years later become something like a, I don't know twenty twenty, the second half of twenty twenty? That's something that people are betting on. Right? So, 
So, so I think I think I agree with you. I mean, some some of the um, some of the new funds might find it hard to raise money, but uh, but but for the funds which have the money, which have the existing money, okay, think about a few years down the road, they 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 they, 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 they are probably going to be very bullish in deploying that money. Yeah, and I think that ties back. I, I to think the... I think the welcome. Go go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, go ahead, Alex. So no, I, was no, thinking, I think the two interesting trends that are going to happen uh, in terms of fundraising and investing is um, one, if you look at how Y Combinator is doing it, basically what they've done is technically uh, a seed fund as a tack on to their pre-seed fund because not everyone's going to get the 500k, right? It's an additional yeah. allocation if the startup meets the requirements and they pass through the IC. So technically they're doing what everyone else is doing, which is you realize after a while that you need to prorate and have a significant percentage of the company if you know it's Correct. a winning bet. And yeah. and they've been proven, at least the last year, because they've had a bunch of IPOs, it, you know, the, the, the market is saying that Y Combinator knows what they're doing. Y Combinator has become a brand that has become exclusive enough that a lot of founders want to have the YC stamp. The, the network that it unlocks is incredible. And so as a result, they're just banking on them having this incredible um, funnel, top of the funnel, that is going to open them up to so many entrepreneurs. And then therefore, why not prorate and continue, right? I think the more interesting question, and, and so if you ask me, do I think fund ticket sizes are going to go up? They're going to go up across the board. Every fund is going to have a follow-on fund, and, and you'll see none of that. That's not really going to change. I think the more important question to ask is, will we see more of Sequoia's model, the, the fund in perpetuity, which they launched in uh, developed markets, but not in developing markets yet? So the way that works is they're going to run it more like a family fund. So instead of having a 10-year uh, end, they basically own that company in perpetuity and LPs can dip in and out if they want to, right? That theoretically unlocks way more capital for them, but it allows them to therefore capitalize on continuing to hold public equities uh, once companies go public and continue to, to earn from that. I think we may see, and th this may be a prediction, the first of its kind of that kind of fund in Southeast Asia, because no one's doing that in Southeast Asia yet, and it'll probably happen in 2022. Um, and probably will start the the chain for more funds to do that. And the reason why I say that is if you think of the largest LPs in Southeast Asia, it's family offices and, you know, these big conglomerate families who are funding a lot of these funds, right? Sure, there's external LPs, but if we look at Asia, it's fundamentally family offices and larger conglomerates who have a risk, uh, like high risk appetite. And they've already been doing perpetual funds. They just haven't been doing it in the VC model. So you're marrying an existing uh, yeah. Asian concept of family offices with, um, with the VC model to this new perpetual fund model that Sequoia is running. So I think we'll see the first few of its kind in Asia in the next few months. I mean, and the interesting thing is like, it's it's tooted as this big innovation, but honestly, it's structured closer to a hedge fund. They have more public exposure and it's they have the same mechanics, like a watermark of sorts in a benchmark. Yeah. Actually, well, they call it a benchmark, right? So they have a benchmark there where they have to perform, you know, and it's just essentially they they look more more flexible now, and they have more opportunity for longer term you know, value to to capture that. But it's essentially a structure like a hedge fund, right? And I think that's just, you know, over time they've gotten so big that they can do that, right? So, and I think it makes sense, you know, giving more flexibility, more optionality for for their their investors, uh, you know, whether they need to redeem some to to maintain. I don't know, whatever the, the LPs are doing in terms of pension funds or whatever, right? Or endowments to, to fund for students, right? So um, I, I think that's yeah, an interesting prediction. And um, I don't know, maybe that's something uh, we all can look at too. Dave, do you have anything to add for uh, how anything's going to change? Uh, permanent office, permanent capital, 
I said Dave is starting his own family office, permanent capital. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I think there's going. So I no, I do have some additional thoughts on like predictions, but they're more like really macro stuff. Like I think like there's going to be actually an increase in competition in the region. Um, I think you know, sort of like in one time, one time, like look at what's happening in like U.S. China relationships. They're like basically continue to bifurcate, and there's the branches, the clear trajectory of decoupling that's happening at this point, right? And I think the more that happens, the more both those countries will look at Southeast Asia as like a key strategic area for them to both invest uh, like hard power and soft power. So I do think that like we're going to see more activity um, from a geopolitical point of view from both countries as they start to to sort of like shift their focus towards competition of like building out like a framework of allies in the region. But that's like really generic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, if the, if that's the case, there's definitely, in my opinion, more conflict to happen. I, mean, I think we're in a very interesting transitory phase of you know, society shifting and empire shifting. So, I mean, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting time in, in the next ten, the next decade. I think will be very fascinating of where where, where we land. So, um, and any any closing thoughts then, or is there anything else want to add on, or are we good? Uh, I'm okay. Alex, I, I I need to leave now. I have a doctor's yep. appointment, but uh, okay. But but, but before I leave, I just want to do one point, which is about, uh, the news that came up yesterday, which I think is extremely shocking, that the, the whole of 2021, the population of China grew by half a million. Oh, really? So I think that's shocking. Well, yeah. Well, they've been on decline for years. Well, no, that's not shocking. But, 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 but the scale... Who are these babies? I, just, are these babies? I think the scale... Of the decline um, and uh, and the speed is is, is is still pretty pretty impressive and uh, and and I think uh, I think the government has a huge task to turn this around and if they don't manage to turn it around uh, there will be lots of consequences on businesses on economy on geopolitics. So something I don't think they, yeah, yeah I don't think they can, I don't think they can I think it's I think it's too late right yeah because I, yeah I've, I've read the same report where basically the demographic I think their population is expected to decline midway this decade, like by 2025, we will be in like permanent population decline, right? And usually how like countries address this Like, kind of like Japan. Is, yeah, basically like Japan, right? Which, and which is interesting because they haven't escaped middle income yet, right? So usually typically you modernize fully and then and then you start to decline, but, uh, but not even yeah. there. No, yeah, but, exactly. but one-child policy does that to you. Sorry, Chang'an, did you say they had 500, like half a million extra babies? No, I, I didn't, I, I think I misunderstood you. No, the, the, the total population growth, which means the total birth minus total death is about yeah. half a million. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's nothing. It's plus half a million or, or minus half a million? Plus. 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 That's which is weird, very no? They should be a, a negative. They should be no, a no, negative. No, no, no. Their so population growth is supposed to, it's it's predicted to peak in like 2025 and then just decline from there on under. But gotcha, like gotcha. half a okay, million so in a country, one, yeah, basically, like but half a million. Three years in advance. Yeah, yeah, but like that's, but this is, this is like the problem. Honestly, right? really? is that the worst thing? We're just going to have more supply than demand globally, which means we'll have a post-scarcity economy before we know it, right? Well, I mean, I think the problem it's not here, exactly the, like. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry, just, 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 like, I, 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 I,
Um, I guess, you know, for me, it's like most of, of modern economy is based on this idea of growth at all costs, consumption and production. And we're going to start to see the beginnings of a new kind of economy, right? Because the Western world is already in terms of, of population decline, which means consumption is reducing and production will therefore reduce in terms of material products, but services may increase and we may see the way these goods get distributed start to change. Um, if you look at the UN's prediction for global population, we're supposed to hit a maximum of 11 billion before the reversal starts, the great reversal starts in 2050. And it's going to be fascinating to watch what happens then because all of this time we've been depending on humans to be the consumers and producers. But now we're going to have automation starting to take over some of the production. We're going to have cheaper energy. I mean, like if you think of, if you project like PV prices up, like if you think about it, right, most products have four fundamental things to them. There's the raw materials, there's the transportation, there's the energy cost of it and the labor cost that gets into it, right? And what's happening now is energy costs will start to reverse in about 20 years time as, as like renewables become super cheap, right? Then you have labor itself that starts to become cheaper and cheaper because of AI, robotics and automation. And then you basically have all, all you have left, uh, sorry, and then transportation, which is somewhat tied to energies and automation, which then starts to reduce. And so when these three things start to get down, all you have is raw materials, which means that if you're, you know, a, a producer, it's going to be you know, like either things get cheaper or capitalists take more money. It's hard to say where it goes. I'm going to bet on the latter because that's exactly how we've seen late stage capitalism work. But then on the flip side of that is you have a, a ridiculous reduction in demand right which means suddenly things like land become abundant things that we used to think of as scarce products and, and its growth uh, in terms of price was completely dependent on its scarcity these things may start to reverse and it's kind of cool to see china which is a you know emerging economy maybe one of the first like uh, experiments in emerging economies with a centralized control being able to figure out how to balance that demand and supply bridge right um i'm not sure how it's going to work on but i actually think there's a positive spin here which is less people with more goods uh probably not the worst thing oh well I, I was just thinking that to navigate that change you would need the people to do it and if the deceleration is too much so essentially china has a social contract where as long as there's economic prosperity the people are willing to give up control in certain areas of their lives right so that, that social contract is very delicate and as soon as the machine stops working there's going to be turmoil in the country. And you saw signs of this um, when, when a lot of people couldn't go home for, for like the Chinese New Year and like it was th things are getting too expensive to go back to the rural. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a very delicate transition that needs to happen. But in order for that transition to happen, you will need to have a sustained population growing to, to keep you know, reinvesting in the high skill knowledge to make that transfer. So it's it's not as clear cut, I think. I think, you know, ultimately, if they can make that transition, you're right, Andrew. But I, I don't know if that's going to be the case, really. Well, I think Andrew's point was like more of like a global macro point. And I think my point to you, Andrew, is I think the demand will never go down. It will just shift into different categories, right? So if you think about it, like as their population gets, like, okay, if I'm, if I'm saying anything about China, as their population gets older, right? They're going to probably want less iPhones, but like the demand for things like hospice care, uh, retirement centers, mm, like medication. Yeah. So they'll, they'll shift into different categories, right? And I think the challenge vis-a-vis China specifically is like, if you think about like basically how they've driven their growth for the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years, basically it was the low hanging fruit, right? They took 
uh, they're like really rural population and they've industrialized and they've urbanized and they moved into the coast. And so they sort of like took down that very lowest uh, level of value creation by basically just industrializing and becoming capitalist society. But then as we like get to the next layer, but then really what we're talking about is they need to um, drive their growth via services, via innovation, Correct. technology. That's much harder to do. And I think they're, and this is what we talked about. I think their crackdown in the last two, one to two years will have some significant effects, right? There's always second and third order consequences to the things yeah. that are done by any government, no matter how competent they are. I mean, one child policy, this is like the one child policy coming home to roost, right? Mm. 30, 40 yeah. years ago, it seemed like a great idea. Now they're like, oh, crap. And so I think, I think you know, I read an article uh, that was analyzing sort of the government policies. And I think the fundamental challenge of this government policy is like the Chinese crackdowns have been both capricious and really, really severe. And if it was just one or the other, I think people would have been able to deal with it or entrepreneurs and, and innovators would deal with it. But now because it's both, I think that's going to have some severe consequences in, in you know, sort of like their rates of entrepreneurial participation. Um, I, don't, I don't think we can top down engineer and force people to do things that you want to do. I think, I think that is an exercise in, in hubris. I think that's been proven uh, many, many times in the past by top-down economies to not work. And that's really kind of- The USSR. Yeah, I mean, that's what they're doing again. They're basically forcing people to go into like hard, not forcing, but they're like really, really pushing for like hard sciences, semiconductors, like high-end manufacturing, and trying to get people away from uh, sort of like the more like this called like frivolous areas of tech, like the gaming, the social apps, um, and I think you can do it to a certain extent, but ultimately human nature is what it is. And I think we're trying to force people to do that uh, without the natural buy-in, it's not going to be that successful. Okay. So, uh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I guess, uh, we could, uh, probably end it here guys. Right. I think we covered most of the topics. Yeah. 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 yeah sounds good. Sounds, sounds good. good. We're also a bit over time. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, it's good to see you, Andrew. You're you're looking uh, healthy in Mexico, the, enjoying uh, the life. 